Late last week, our profession lost one of its most iconic leaders. Harold Burson passed away at the age of 98, leaving behind a lasting legacy and thousands of heavy hearts. Today, we're bringing you an episode we published last year to honor Harold. He will be remembered always for his vision, his integrity, his wisdom, his grit, and his unmatched impact on the profession he loved so dearly. Public relations is not an industry that has a lot of iconic rock star figures. But if there were a Mount Rushmore for our profession, surely one of its faces would be Harold Burson. As a soldier during World War II, he covered the Nuremberg Trials. In 1953, he founded one of the world's largest and most respected PR agencies. And he's been a trusted advisor to countless leaders, including U.S. presidents. His seven-decade career is a testament to his grit, as well as his devotion to the profession. To celebrate his life and career, we're honored to bring you an intimate conversation we recorded with Harold at the 2018 Spring Seminar in New York. He's being interviewed by Becky Edwards, the now CCO at Schneider Electric, who, at the time, was with the International Olympic Committee. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is the new CCO. In 1973, I was asked to make a talk at the uh, Columbia Graduate School of Business. And the subject was really uh, about the uh, social responsibility of uh, industry. And I want to read you uh, just a few paragraphs from the speech that, that I made. Uh, I say, the chief public relations officer for the modern corporation fulfills a role that is frequently divided into four parts. First, as a censor, and that's S-E-N-S-O-R, of social change, which perceives these rumblings at the heart of society that augur good or ill for his or her employer. In a way, he is like a radar man who proves, who gives an early warning. And after directing the yearnings and stirrings, he interprets the signals for the management team. The second role is that of corporate conscience. There are others in the corporate hierarchy who may possess the same amount or even more of these attributes than those responsible for public relations. But the fact is that being the professional corporate conscious is not part of the job description of other executives. It is part of the job description of the chief public relations officer, or should be. The third major role is that of communicator. The tendency is to think that communications, media relations, is the only role. Most often, the emphasis is placed on external communication, but in many respects, external communication is secondary and dependent upon an effective internal communications program. The principal attributes of external communications are accuracy and timeliness. The principal attribute of internal communication is the employees are not only told the when, what, and where, but also the why. The fourth 
function is to serve as a corporate monitor that the chief public relations officer should regard his job. But obviously, he or she cannot be an ombudsman in the strictest sense of the word. However, there is a need for a monitor to the company's policies and practices on a continuing basis and whether they live up to the firm's promises and stakeholder expectations, areas that are closely related to the chief public relations other functions. What I've just read encapsulates my idea of what constitutes the job description of a corporate public, chief public relations officer a few years short of a half century ago, as expressed in this lecture at Columbia University. In the interim, my intimate knowledge of 50 or more corporations, most in the Fortune 500, have reinforced my feeling that their chief public relations officers should be empowered. Thank you. I, I think you just kicked off the PR campaign for PR. <laughs> Um, well, it's long overdue. It's long overdue. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, so that was written in 1973. And in that time, do you think the role of chief public relations officer or CCO has uh, risen in esteem or fallen or...? When I started my career, which was around 1950, uh, the title that was used by most corporations was publicity director or public relations director. Uh, in the mid-60s or so, that title escalated to vice president in charge of public relations. In about 1980 to 1990, uh, a few companies uh, and some very large ones at that uh, elevated the title even higher to executive vice president. And uh, probably m most important of all, in that period, uh, toward the end of the century, uh, the chief public relations officer uh, very frequently went on the management committee of the corporation. So that is one escalation that I think that uh, demonstrates that uh, public relations has gained in stature. The other one that I use is uh, that back in the early period, management would ask the public relations chief, how do I say it? And give me a news release telling me, putting into words what, what I've just asked you to do. And the next escalation was, uh, what do I say? And that went on for a few years. And now, uh, in many, many cases, it's a case of asking the public relations chief, what do I do? And that, to me, demonstrates that the... Uh, uh, public relations function has risen as a, a corporate function that is very valuable. 
one other thing that is both good and bad, I suppose, and that is how close today the public relations officer chief is to the CEO. When the CEO leaves in many companies, the chief public relations officer is not far behind, either willingly or not. And so I, I, I'm very bullish on uh, the future for the public relations profession uh, because uh, people today uh, are uh, much more likely to, to know uh, what's going on in a company and they really re react to it very quickly. Uh, that wasn't the case 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, and maybe it, it's going back to the point you made about being that corporate conscience, but are there attributes or, or skill sets that are essential to maintaining that seat at the table in those strategic conversations? When I was growing up, my father, who uh, had a high school education in England, however, which probably amounted to a college education uh, in the United States, was an, uh, an avid reader. He read everything. And uh, one of the things that he uh, admonished me on was to be in the know. And to him, being in the know is that if someone brought up a subject, uh, you could talk intelligently about it for two or three minutes uh, long enough to indicate that you, you knew about what the subject basically was, and it, it gave you enough time to change the subject to one. <laughs> so I, I, I think having a broad knowledge of a lot of things is, is, is one of the attributes. The other is uh, being a good listener. Uh, good reasons that you uh, have two ears but only one mouth. Uh, you learn a lot more listening than you do talking. We had a situation where uh, the, the public relations uh, chief of one of the fortune I guess 10 or 15 companies took early retirement and we had just moved into our offices on Park Avenue and I had a lot of extra space and uh, I found out that uh, he was going to continue coming to New York. He lived in Connecticut and, uh, uh, and he had, had other interests to manage so I put him into the office next to me and he uh, started talk, talking to me about uh, the company he worked for and what the problems of the industry were. And one day, about a half a year later, he came to my office around 2 o'clock and said, are you busy the rest of the afternoon? And I said, I can be unbusy if you want me to. And he said, well, I just had lunch with the CEO of this company and they've got a lot of problems uh, and I told him about you and he's expecting your telephone call. So I went up to see this man. He told me about most of his problems and I would look at my watch 
I got there about quarter to three, and it was a quarter after five, and I said, uh, we're very interested in this, and would you like to uh, us to send you a proposal? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, uh, how do you people charge? And I said, uh, not as much as your lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> And, 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 and he, uh, he said to me, what if we started uh, and said, uh, give you a fee of $50,000 a month. I was going to ask him for twenty five. <laughs> this is the days when the CEOs were making the decision on who was going to be the public relations agency. And uh, uh, I knew their chief public relations officer and we were very friendly, and I said, does so-and-so know about this? And he said, uh, he's going to find out tomorrow morning when you and I have breakfast with him. So when I got back to my office, my friend, benefactor, said to me, uh, so-and-so thinks you're one of the smartest guys he's talked to in a long, long time. And I said, how the hell would he know? Because he did all the talking. <laughs> so so, uh, so I, I've tried to keep my mouth shut as much as I can. I took a note on that one. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, since I, like you, came to public relations after being a journalist... I remember the days of advertorials when there was a lot of controversy about whether the reader would be able to distinguish between what was news and feature commentary from what was paid. And now we seem to be facing that a little bit with social media as well. Do you worry about the ethical boundaries there? Do you see advantages to, to social media and amplification? In the 1960s, a professor at a Canadian university wrote an essay in which he said, the media is the message. And by that he meant you, you rated the veracity of what you read by the reputation of the publication or the broadcast vehicle that you heard the message from. I think that uh, the same applies today to uh, digital. I think digital has a big hole that they have dug, and it's going to take them a long time to get out of. So I think people will not give the same credence to uh, all everything on digital uh, that they uh, might have done if uh, there hadn't been all these scandals uh, that we've been reading about recently. I think that uh, the print media uh, are not going to disappear. I think probably the formats will. I think that uh, in 10, 15 years, uh, there's going to be three national newspapers in the United States. But they will also be supplemented by as many uh, small-town newspapers as are now being published. Uh, I think, for example, uh, if, if, if you want to think about 
what a newspaper is doing to try to conform to what the public wants. Look at the New York Times of five years ago and look at it today. The Times, I think, is doing one of the best jobs of investigative reporting of any publication, uh, any media. Uh, They are uh, giving a lot of space to some of these uh, exposés that they're doing. Up until about a year ago, they never had gave a story more than a single page. Now they have run stories and given as many as three pages to a, to a story. I feel that the uh, public uh, generally uh, is going to be more and more sophisticated about the uh, quality of news that they get uh, from digital as well as from other media. Since you mentioned the New York Times, it reminds me that you told me that that was your dream job long ago before you left reporting. What did make you leave uh, journalism? The money. (laughs) I started in journalism on a high school newspaper. I was sort of a teacher's pet. Uh, I was... uh, three years younger than most of the people in my high school and in college as well. I graduated from high school when I was 15, and I graduated from college when I was 19. Uh, And this teacher who was in charge of the school newspaper really uh, spent a lot of time teaching me how to write a news story and things like that. And... uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was appointed to be the correspondent to the Memphis Commercial Appeal Sunday newspaper. They had devoted a page to high school news. Uh, instead of mailing my copy into the uh, newspaper to the reporter, education reporter, uh, I hand-carried it. And after about the third or fourth... Uh, visit, uh, he said, sit down. And he painstakingly edited the story, and he did that for the rest of the school year, and it was the best part of my education, I think. Uh, The reason I went to Ole Miss, uh, to college, is that I knew I had to pay my own way to go through college. Ole Miss is only 75 miles from Memphis, so it, the paper that did this column for in high school had a, what they call a stringer to uh, cover news on the campus. And uh, it, it paid 14 cents a column inch. And uh, in those days, uh, you could go to a southern university for less than $1,000 a year. So I was able to pay my own way through college. I had this desire to come to New York and work for the New York Times. Uh, If I'd had enough cash to buy a bus ticket and uh, eat for two or three months, I would have probably gone directly from my commencement exercises up to New York. (laughs) But I didn't have it, but I did have a job at the Commercial Appeal. And I was covering uh, 
this assignment uh, in West Tennessee, and this the year was 1940. The draft bill was passed in August, and in November, the War Department decided to build a tremendous shell loading plant in the area that I was covering. And they selected a, a large contractor that had its headquarters in New York. And uh, I met the owner of the company and uh, did an interview on him, and it was a cream puff type interview, and he liked it. And about two weeks later, he called me on the phone and said, uh, I'm coming down to visit this plant site, and I want uh, to talk to you about your future. And he came down and he said, uh, what's happening, and you've been writing about it, is it was a union shop contractor, but it was operated, the plant construction was going to be in a non-union territory. And they were going to have to negotiate how the craftsmen in the area were going to get jobs and how the subcontractors were going to get work. They figured it might take as long as uh, three to four months before they were able to start the project. And he felt this was going to be a national story because it was the first example of where you had a union contractor in, in a non-union area. This gentleman said, uh, you know, I don't have anybody on my staff who can deal with the media, and this is going to be a national story. And he said, also, when this war is over, we're going to have a lot more competition. The small contractors are going to be big contractors. And he said, can you get a leave of absence from your paper and get us through this crisis that we're going to have? As he was talking, my mind was already made up because I thought this was going to be my ticket to New York. (laughs) And uh, he said, how much do they pay you? And I said, $25 a week. He said, well, we'll double that. You got a car? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, we'll give you a car, too. <laughs> so uh, in, in the interest of being absolutely truthful to you, the reason I took the job was because of the money. <laughs> but really, it was because I could come to New York. It only took about three weeks, by the way, to settle this thing. The country back then had a much more patriotic attitude than it's had in in many, many years. And it settled in three weeks. And uh, he called me and said, I need an assistant to travel with me. And he said, this is a good way for you to learn our business. So I traveled with him for two years and went to every meeting that he did. Finally, at late 1943, I had told him that I was not going to let the war end without my being in uniform. And uh, so I told him I was going to ask the draft board to draft me. Uh, Since I worked for a defense industry, I had an automatic deferment throughout the war, but I went into the Army, and they having... Uh, they were very efficient uh, in the personnel department. They saw that I worked for an engineering construction company, and they put me into a combat engineer group, which uh, 
my mother didn't raise me to be in. And so after two years in that combat engineer group, I was able to get a transfer and ended up with American Forces Network and got to live in Paris for five months. And they probably the best five months for, for an American uh, young man who was a soldier uh, who had a high uh, uh, metabolism rate. <laughs> Harold, we hear a lot about your success. What was your biggest, most soul-crushing, humiliating failure? <laughs> and what did you learn from it? I, I never, never thought about it. <laughs> the, uh, uh, it, it occurred to me when I was writing my book that I have had a, a, a pretty charmed life. Mm-hmm. I started out when the reason that I went into my own business is that my boss from the construction company died while I was in the service. I did not want to come back as an employee. I had one exposure to public relations when uh, the, uh, at Ole Miss, uh, the uh, director of public relations uh, got drunk one night and rammed his Ford Roadster into a tree right in front of the chancellor's office and he got fired before the chancellor knew that he was still alive. And, uh, I, and, and the chancellor, I was 19 years old, no, 18 years old, because I was a junior, uh, asked me if I would take over what they called the Old Miss News Bureau. And, and, and it had about four or five student employees and one uh, other professional. And he asked me to run that thing, the news bureau, which I did for a year and a half. And uh, that, that was the only experience I had in public relations. Uh, but I started, I had $3,000 uh, when I left the Army. was alone for five years until I met Bill Marsteller. And I started out with two accounts, the company I'd worked for and another company that they helped me get. I, I never had a month where I was concerned about meeting the payroll or paying the rent. In uh, the 35 years that I was the CEO, we had a growth rate of 22.2% a year for 35 years. and uh, became the largest agency in the world uh, in 1983. And never really had a a setback, which I'm really very thankful for. I guess that's the reason I I, I can't think of. (laughs) A statement was attributed to you that if the client gets stabbed with an ice Oh, yeah, I bleed. that still holds true today? In some cases, yes. 
In other cases, no, not as universal as it was. I look back on those years, and it, it, it was sort of like Camelot. Uh, and the interesting thing about our company is uh, the, the loyalty of former employees to the company. In about 20 cities around the world, there are Burson Marstella alumni clubs where they meet uh, usually annually or some of, them, some of them twice annually and, and have drinks or dinner or something. I, for a long time, would try to make one every year. It's just amazing how my emails, uh, there's hardly a week or a month that goes by where I don't get an email from a person who uh, says, I just want you to know that I got promoted and uh, I've, I've done extremely well and I owe it to the training I got at Burson Marstell. Wow. And, 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 uh, uh, my observation is that when you're 97 years old, you can get away with anything. <laughs> Thank you both so much. If you enjoyed today's episode of the new CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at Page, please visit us at page.org. Special thanks go to Morning Consult and to Rivet Smart Audio, our podcast sponsors. Without their support, we wouldn't be able to bring this podcast to you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the new CCO.